Good. So yeah, we're going to jump into uh, Pastor Forum 1. This is uh, our second week doing it, where we're answering questions about Christianity. And last week was really, really good. We had a lot of good comments and emails yeah. that came in. Uh, what were some of the things that we were responding yeah, to? Yeah, there's a lot of great comments. And I heard from a lot of people that as you drove home, you continued discussing the questions, which is really fantastic. That's kind of the whole point is to initially start a dialogue, but then to keep it going, not just throughout the day, but throughout the week as well. So there were some people who were... Um, Talking a lot about salvation in, in, in faith last year, uh, last week, uh, which, you know, I'm not surprised. I intentionally did a series on grace right before Pastor 411 because I kind of knew the topics we're going to be getting into. And, and so it maybe it primed us a bit for that. But some people were, were asking questions uh, that were good and healthy. Uh, others were starting to maybe question their salvation a little bit, going, oh gosh, like, do I have a full enough understanding of, of the gospel? But, um, but I just want people to, to be confident because one of the great things about Christianity is that is that God wants us to have assurance we have the ability to know for certain that we are uh, in his family and uh, and heaven bound Mm -hmm. so um, yes we definitely want people to have that assurance not to lead to other questions beyond that in the days ahead so yeah yeah and I guess just a few ways that we can Mm -hmm. kind of summarize this we've talked about this in the past there's an ABC kind of a model and so if we accept that Jesus came and died for us and, and uh, sacrificed his life for us on the cross, that he would take away all of our sin. If we believe that in our hearts, and if we confess that he is our Lord and Savior, we, we are able to receive that gift of grace to be able to spend eternity with him in heaven. Absolutely, yeah. Accept, believe, confess. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And uh, if we've done those things, we know that we are uh, on a journey with him, that we can continue to grow in. So, But if you do have any more questions about that sort of stuff, or if you're kind of curious where you find yourself in the midst of that relationship, uh, call us, email us, uh, or even before that, you might want to go back and just watch the, uh, the Point of View series on grace that we did before this one. Yeah. Uh, some good content in there as well. But probably one of the big questions that came up last week that was continued to be discussed throughout the week, even as recently as yesterday, I had a comment on this one still, uh, is about pets, whether or not our pets are going to be in, in heaven with us or not. And apparently I upset some cat people. Yeah, I think <laughs> you did, yeah. So, so I feel like we should start today by apologizing. So I want to apologize to all of the cat people. I'm sorry your cats will not be in heaven with you. <laughs> so, but, so, uh, I will, and I'll do my best not to offend anybody today. Is there anybody here who likes snakes, though? Yeah. Yes. I have one well, in the back. Right on. Well, let's jump off of that. What do we got for question. snakes today? Yeah, I mean, we'll do our first question based upon that. Yeah, so our first question, a little bit more pets for today. Yeah. Um, is it wrong to keep a snake as a pet? Yeah, we've actually received this one the last two years in a row, and it had just never come around before. Uh, but this year, I wanted to include it because pets was a big topic last mm-hmm. week. So, so here we go. Uh, and, and if you're wondering why is this even a question, well, the basis really finds itself, <clears throat> excuse me, uh, from the Bible. Where in the Bible, one of the prime uh, examples of like sin and evil is snakes. We find this in all sorts of biblical metaphors that show up. Where uh, the poison of the snake is kind of a metaphor for spiritual sickness that can happen. Uh, the craftiness of a snake is a metaphor for for being a liar and being deceitful and deceptive. Uh, but of course. We hear about snakes, and our minds probably very quickly go back to the Garden of Eden, where, where Satan in a serpent you know, lied and tempted Adam and Eve, leading to the first sin. And with all these things together, snakes just have this very negative connotation in Scripture. 
Uh, and it begins, as I mentioned, in Genesis 3, chapter 1, where it says, the serpent was more crafty. There's that word crafty. We see that showing up later in the Bible, too, referencing uh, the snake as a metaphor. Then any of the wild animals the Lord had made. And he said to the woman, did God really say, do not eat from any tree in the garden? So snakes, here's what we need to know, though. We need to understand that snakes are amoral creatures. That, that means that they're neutral in matters of right and wrong. Snakes, like all wild animals, they just simply behave based upon instinct. Um, and this is something that actually came up in, uh, in some philosophy courses that I've taken in, in seminary and whatnot, where we talk about world, different worldviews. Uh, and for example, you know, aside from the snake example, one example that comes up in the classroom is, well, what about like a tank? Like, is, is a tank evil? is a tank inherently evil. Because what is a tank created for? Well, it's created to cause destruction and death. But, you know, a tank also provides, from a different perspective, protection. It doesn't just um, destruct. It also can provide protection. And, and technically, it also provides transportation. You could take a tank to work every day. Of. You could. No, I would, but technically you could, right? But the point is, is that the tank is not evil, it's the moral agent behind that item of what is uh, not neutral, either righteous or unrighteous. And, and therefore, when we look at the snake in the garden, remember that a snake is an amoral creature, it, it may be creepy, but it's not inherently evil. Satan is responsible as the evil moral agent behind what takes place in that story. And we see this actually in the way that pronounces the curses, uh, the, the judgments upon Satan. Uh, and when we look at Genesis chapter 3, verse 14 and 15, uh, kind of pay attention to who God's talking to here. So it starts in verse 14 by saying, So the Lord said to the serpent, uh, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all the livestock and all the wild animals. You will crawl in your belly, and you will eat the dust all the days of your life. Now, we're not totally sure who he's talking to here yet. Uh, could be Satan or the snake. But verse 15 really clears up who God is addressing here. And verse 15 continues, And I will put my enmity, that means kind of hostility, division, uh, between you and the woman and between your offspring and her. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. Now, very simply, just very simply covering this, it appears that God is kind of intending for the snake to be a, sort of an image or a reminder to us, and this has taken root, of, uh, of who the devil is and of God's power over Satan. So there's a bit of a reminder that happens with the snake. And that's why in some subcultures of, of the world, we find that they uh, appropriate this negative evil connotation and they, they appropriate it to the point of actually celebrating it. And so you see a lot of snakes and things like that in, in graphics and different areas that we would consider to be evil. It's a celebration. It's, it's a, really an appropriation of this aspect that the snake is intended to be uh, a reminder of, you know, of, of Satan. Uh, but he's actually speaking to Satan here. He's saying that just like a snake, you, you will hide, you will strike, and you will try to inflict spiritual injury and death upon the people that God has created but you will fail. You will fail because there is one who will be born who will ultimately defeat you. And this actually leads to another question that we received last year I didn't cover that we'll just quickly add in here right now, which is what does it mean that God will crush Satan's head? 
Well, that's what this is talking about. What we see in in verse 15 here is the very, very first gospel, the very first sense in the Bible that there is an offspring of a woman that will come, and his name will be Jesus, and he will be the Son of God, and he will be born of both spirit and flesh, and he, at the end of his ministry, he will be our victorious serpent crusher, or as in the book of Revelations, he's referred to as the dragon killer. And when you crush a serpent's head... It's not much of a threat anymore, is it? Which is kind of the idea, is that, is that Satan, while he's permitted to, to have some level of influence right now, to strike, to try to inflict uh, spiritual injury and death, the day will come when his head will be crushed and he will no longer be a threat to any of us. So, considering all that, is it okay to have a snake as a pet? Not everyone's first choice, that's for sure. But I would simply ask you a follow-up question. Why? Why do you want to have a snake? Is it because you want to participate in this subculture of appropriating something that is evil and celebrating that? Well, then obviously the answer is no. Like, that's not something we should be involved in. But if you are one of those people who finds them fascinating, like Kathy, who very joyously said she likes snakes, (laughs) if you find them fascinating and you want to have one as a pet for that purpose, that's fine. Just keep it in the cage when I come over, and we'll be okay. (laughs) Keep it away. Keep it away from me. Yeah. Yeah, that's good. Okay, are we good for pets today? I think that's it for pets. No okay. more pet questions. I think we're done for pets. I don't so, think there's no next week either. No. Okay, so we're done. For not at this pets. point, anyways. Yeah. We'll see. What I happens. mean, you can send them in. We just might not answer them publicly. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Are we ready for our next question? Look to your neighbor. Say, "Are you ready?" No, you got to do it with authority. <laughs> Look to your neighbor. Say, "Are you ready?" All right. Yes. Okay. Let's jump to our next question. Yeah. Um, that is, what happens to the Old Testament saints? Yeah. Old Testament saints when they died. Right. So people of the Old Testament uh, who live faithful lives according to God's laws, basically, is what we're talking about here. It's a good question and important. I'm going to take a couple minutes to answer this one because not only do we want to address this question today, but this will also form a bit of a foundation that we can jump off of for questions later today and in the weeks to come as well. So um, the basis of this revolves around, uh, from, from like a Christian perspective, looking at, at the totality of Scripture that we have, kind of looking backwards, we, we find the basis of this question is the problem found, for example, in John 14, 6, where Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Nobody comes to the Father except through me. Well, that causes a problem for people who existed in the Old Testament times because Jesus is you know, absent. His, the work of Jesus that we read about in the New Testament is absent during the time of the Old Testament. So how does, how does that work for those who were faithful during the Old Testament times? And one option is, is that it could be this sense of sort of a two-tiered system where there is a system you know, in the Old Testament and a system in the New Testament both leading to the same ends. Uh, for example, uh, like in the Old Testament, faithful people would keep the laws that God had given them, which included a sacrificial system. And then if they were faithful to do those things when they died, they would go to the Father and go to heaven. But if that was the case, then... You know, the next question that causes, the problem that causes, well, then why did Jesus even need to come do what he did? Like, if that system worked in totality, why not just keep it with that system? Like, if, if it ain't broken, don't fix it, kind of thing. Um, but we know there must be something else going on there. There must be more taking place because of the importance, the significance of all of the Old Testament pointing to Jesus. And so there must be something more going on than just that. Unfortunately, the Old Testament is actually quite uh, silent on matters of the afterlife. And probably the best insight we get to this actually comes from Jesus in a parable that he told. Uh, now remember, when Jesus is telling these parables, it's during a time when, when he has not yet you know, died and been resurrected. So while we're very close to that taking place, we're still living and operating at this particular time under the Old Testament system. 
So here's this parable. I want to, uh, Zach, if you could read it for us, then I'm just going to unpack it briefly. But um, this is a parable of Jesus from, from Luke 16. Sure. There was a rich man who was dressed in purple and fine linen and lived in luxury every day. At his gate was laid a beggar named Lazarus, covered with sores and longing to eat what fell from the rich man's table. Even the dogs came and licked his sores. The time came when the beggar died and the angels carried him to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. In Hades, Abraham far away with, with Lazarus by his side. So he called to him, Father Abraham, have pity on me and send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue because I am in agony in this fire. But Abraham replied, Son, remember that in your lifetime you received good things while Lazarus received bad things. But now he is comforted, he is comforted here and you are in agony. And besides all this, between us and you is a great chasm has been set in place so that those who want to go from here to you cannot nor can anyone cross over from there to us. Perfect, right. Lots in there we're going to cover a bit this week and a bit next week as we get into it. But So this is a parable Jesus told. Um, and, and just within any time we see a parable, we know that it is a special type of genre reading, which is not meant to take every single element perfectly literally, but it is meant to present a literal truth. And that is presenting a little truth through some metaphoric language. So what can we find in this that is helpful for the question? Here we see two people who die. One person who is considered righteous and one who is unrighteous. And yet they go to the same place, but they have very different experiences when they get to that same place. And that place is referred to in Scripture as Sheol, which we understand to be the grave or sometimes translated as, as the realm of the dead. Now, we don't know exactly where this is, but from, from this passage and, and what we can extrapolate from some others, for example, we get the sense that there's sort of two compartments to Sheol. There's the upper section, which is where the righteous are when the righteous die and they go to what's referred to as Abraham's side or some translations will say Abraham's bosom. This is not heaven but it is a place of refreshing paradise. And it's a place where people have peaceful contentment and they're perfectly okay being there because of, of the nature of the environment. The lower section is referred to as Hades and often we found about 10 times in the New Testament it's quite often translated to hell. So we get a word kind of hell from. And this is a temporary dwelling place of the unfaithful and the wicked. It's a place of torment while people await final judgment. That's part two we'll get to next week a little bit. Now, why is a system like this even necessary? Because if a separation between the righteous and the unrighteous has already happened, well, why wouldn't they just be ushered into heaven? Why wouldn't they just be ushered into the presence of God if a separation has already taken place here? And the answer is because of um, our ability to stand before God is not based upon our good faithful works, which was inherently what the Old Testament system was. It's based upon our nature. And even though a person was faithful in this lifetime and died, their nature had not yet been changed. See, in the Old Testament, God had a people that were set apart for him. And we, we know these people as, as the children of the people of, uh, of Israel, the children of God. There's different ways to refer to. Um, but like all people, they have a sin nature that needs to be resolved that they inherited from Adam. We talked a bit about this last week, I think it was. 
Now, during the time of Moses, God gave these laws that they were to follow, and it included a system of sacrifices that they were to make. And this was all a means of not just showing a person's faithfulness and commitment to God by abiding by the laws and sacrifices, but they are also a means of making payment for sins for a person and for a nation. One of the most important days that we find where this took place is referred to as the Day of Atonement, or if you look at your calendars towards the fall, you'll probably see in it'll say Yom Kippur to this day. It's, it's still a, a Jewish festival that takes place, Yom Kippur, Day of Atonement. This is an annual, uh, an annual time of reflection, of repentance, and of fasting that, that takes place up to this very day. And up to 70 AD, when the temple in Jerusalem was destroyed, uh, it, this part stopped after that point, but up until that point, they also offered sacrifices, animal sacrifices, where an animal without blemish would be taken and offered for the nation so that it would pay for the nation's sins. And we read about this in Leviticus 16.34, where it says, this is to be a lasting ordinance, in reference to Yom Kippur. This is to be a lasting ordinance for you. That atonement is to be made once a year for all the sins of the Israelites, and it was done as the Lord had commanded Moses. Now, simply by the fact that this was done on an annual basis, it shows that there's a limited effectiveness of this particular system that's in place. Because it was effective in proving a person's faithfulness to God, and, and it was a means by which they could, they could show repentance and remorse for their sins, but it had no ability to fully repair the offense against God. The sin nature of the person, their nature never actually changed by these animal sacrifices that took place. And while their nature remained as a sinful nature, throughout the year again, they would build up some more sin debt, commit the sacrifices, and then the cycle just perpetuates itself. Now, consider what John the Baptist said. When Jesus first arrived on the scene, we read this in John 1, 29. Zach, I know that you've been doing a Bible reading plan this year, and you've gone through this one. Do you remember something? Do you remember how Jesus is referred to when John the Baptist Something, well, and God is in there. God yep. removing sin, something along those lines. Right. It was, do you remember what he calls Jesus? He says, look, the, the, Lamb, of the God. Lamb of God who takes away. This is the first time we see this word, this idea of taking away, like removing, wiping clean sin. So we celebrated Easter, is that Jesus came to be that perfect, spotless, sinless sacrifice. And with his sacrifice being made for atonement, not only could sins be forgiven, could repentance be shown, but a nature could now be changed as well. Hebrews 10 talks about this in extents in Hebrews 10, uh, Hebrews, yeah, chapter 10. Um, I'll start reading in verse 11, where it says, day after day, the priest stands and performs his religious duty. Again and again, he offers the same sacrifice which can never take away sins. It can't take them away. It can simply show repentance and remorse for them. But when this priest, referring to Jesus in Hebrews 10, when this priest offered for all time one sacrifice for sins, speaking of Jesus, he then sat down at the right hand of the Father. For by one sacrifice, he has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. So when Jesus made these sacrifices... Not only were our sins fully paid for, the sins of all the faithful paid for, including the Old Testament saints who were waiting for Jesus in peace and safety at Abraham's side, but the sin nature now could possibly be changed as well, which means that Jesus could now usher these people into the presence of God. This is what Jesus is talking about when he's talking to the thief on the cross, when he says, today you'll be with me in paradise. 
That's Friday. On Friday, both the thief and Jesus died. And where did they go? Abraham's side. It's believed that Jesus, this is one of the theories, is that between Friday and Saturday, Jesus was at Abraham's side with the saints. And then on Sunday, when Jesus rose victorious, he could then usher those saints into the presence of God, where they share in his victory, they share in his triumph, and where they remain to this day. Fuller, uh, to further uh, emphasize this, when we look at the rest of the New Testament writings, after the resurrection, any time there's any reference to Sheol, they never speak of an upper chamber ever again, mm-hmm. given the idea that it's been emptied. But there is mention of Sheol after the resurrection, but only in terms of Hades, mm-hmm. where those who were unbelieving, those who did not place their faith in Jesus during life now, reside and wait for uh, future judgment, which we'll talk about next week, yeah. what happens from there. So this waiting room, so to speak, it kind of yeah. sounds like purgatory. It's similar. It, it, if people who understand purgatory, it has some similar aspects, doesn't it? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, which is another question we should tackle right now, too, then, which, you know, is there such a thing as purgatory? Because we can misconstrue what I've just talked about as being a, a system similar to purgatory. Uh, so they are similar only in one sense, that they both speak and try to describe a, a, a state of existence between life now and life eternal. That's the only similarity that they really have. Beyond that, it's completely different doctrine and completely different purpose than, than what we learned about in Sheol. So purgatory uh, is something that you will only find in the doctrines of the Roman Catholic Church and uh, like Orthodox churches. And so uh, before I say anything more, I just want to say that it is a doctrine that outside the Roman Catholics and the Orthodox churches, it's, it's a doctrine that is not agreed with by other tr- Christian traditions. Um, but, you know, I would invite all of us to discuss these things and to consider these things um, respectfully. Mm-hmm. That even though we disagree on, with other Christian traditions on these things, we can disagree respectfully. Mm-hmm. We can disagree without being disagreeable. <laughs> so... Uh, so I encourage us to strive towards that. Now, the origin of this doctrine, if you're not familiar with where this even comes from, it primarily in, in these uh, other Christian traditions is based upon teachings of, of the Pope and developed catechisms and church councils throughout the centuries. Uh, and, and the Roman Catholics, for example, will hold these traditions and these people and their teachings on par with biblical, uh, with, with the scriptures. So they consider traditions and teachings of the Pope to be on par and authority with the scriptures, the Bible that we, that we have. And original scriptural support for purgatory uh, will not be found in, in the Bibles that many of you have uh, on your phones or on your shelves at home. Because the primary scriptural support for it is in what's referred to as the Apocrypha which are 14 additional books that are added to, to the Roman Catholic Bible that they also attribute authority to, that outside those traditions are not held with authority. Now, uh, I, I've studied the Apocrypha. I have a Bible on my shelf that in my office that includes it because uh, part of the training education I went through, we were, you know, it, it was explained to us that there is some good history. <laughs> there, are, there are some things in the Apocryphal writings that have... Um, meaning in terms of, of the uh, transition from the Old Testament to the New Testament, that 400 years of silence, the Apocrypha actually has some historical writings in there that are considered to be accurate, but it is not authoritative for teaching and preaching, mm-hmm. which is why you would never see us do a series on you know, any of those books or 
reference them. Well, I'm going to reference one in a minute here. But aside from today for this purpose, you'll never see us reference those because they aren't considered authoritative for preaching and teaching. But they're sometimes worth studying to be aware of because of some of the history. For example, in First and Second Maccabees, uh, we read about the Jewish revolt against the, the Greeks in Jerusalem. Uh, and, and that's considered to be relatively accurate understanding of how that Jewish revolt took place. You also find the story of Hanukkah. If you ever know where, what Hanukkah is about, where that comes from, First Maccabees uh, has the account. of. But in terms of purgatory, we find this in Second Maccabees, uh, chapter 12, where we read the story about a Jewish nobleman by the name of Judas who was gathering the bodies of fellow soldiers who had died in a battle with him. And as he's gathering them together to go bury their bodies, he finds that some of them are wearing jewelry that had been offered to idols or been part of idol worship. And this was not permitted. It was considered to be a sinful thing. But these guys had died before they could confess this sin. And so we read in 2 Maccabees that, uh, 12 that Judas and his friends offered prayers for their fallen comrades, that they also took a cash collection on behalf of them and sent that money off. And in verse 45 of that chapter, it reads, Therefore, he made atonement for the dead, that they might be delivered from their sins. Now, this is the basis for what we in this idea of purgatory today. The idea being that a, a baptized or a person who is at peace within that particular church tradition, when they die, they go to a place to make penance for the sins they committed in this life. And they go to this place where there is punishment, there is an opportunity to express sorrow for sins that were not fully satisfied in this lifetime. And your length in purgatory will be determined by the nature of your sins. If you have uh, relatively mild things, and you've been a faithful person throughout your hours and rather mild experience. Uh, you know, on the other hand, you might be there for thousands of years in a hell-like experience. Your experience is based upon what uh, sins remain outstanding that need to be dealt with. And they also, based upon this passage in, in Maccabees, there's the opportunity for friends and family who are still living to shorten or to alleviate your soul's journey by giving gifts of service, uh, prayers, holding masses, doing things like this can shorten your time in purgatory. And it's not seen as a punishment, it's actually seen as an act of mercy, because it's believed that without this opportunity, without this act of mercy, that it would be essentially impossible for any person to go to heaven. Uh, because, you know, there's probably something that everybody hasn't confessed, they've taken a step to, to openly confess, and if they die before they can, then, well, going to purgatory allows you to avoid going to hell. So that's the background, and that's what it is. Some, you may have known some of that, but maybe not all of that. That's kind of the background of what it is. Now, outside of the Roman Catholic Church and outside of Orthodox traditions, this is not accepted as a doctrine or holding any authority. Why is that? Primarily uh, because of something referred to as sola scriptura. Anyone heard of that phrase before, sola scriptura? Yeah, it's a Latin phrase, meaning uh, scripture alone. And the only authority that, that we understand or that we hold, and this is where we decide what is worthy of, of teaching and preaching, uh, sola scriptura, uh, approved scripture alone. So traditions have their place within, within our expression, within our Christian expression. They have their place, but they do not have the same authority as scripture. Scripture is held highest as the only authority as God's revealed word to us. And based upon what I just described, uh, you know, purgatory is based primarily upon tradition, and it's based upon questionable scripture. Um, at the same time, the passages that even suggest that there could be a thing such as purgatory, they tend to increase the value of our good works 
decrease the description or decrease the value of Jesus' work of atoning for us. And this just simply contradicts other passages of Scripture that we see, in particular passages that talk about the role we play and the role that Jesus plays in our salvation. Uh, for example, Colossians Excuse me, Colossians 1.22 says, He, speaking of Jesus, has recon- or he has reconciled you by Christ, by Jesus, a physical body through death to present you holy in his sight, without blemish and free from accusation. Um, so there's there in Christ, and when we die, there, there is no blemishes remaining that need to be atoned for afterwards, that Jesus paid it all. Um, but there's many other teachings as well that talk about how we're saved by grace alone and... Um, and the only role that we replay is placing our faith in Jesus and being saved by his grace. Ephesians 2, 8, 9, uh, for it is by grace you are saved through faith, not by works. If you want to learn more about that one, the grace series we did prior to this one. Uh, 2 Corinthians 5, 6, and 8, where it says that believers, when they die, they are away from the body, is to be at home with Christ. Uh, it really doesn't give any sense of intermediate periods between those two things. Uh, so all that to say, because of Jesus alone, when we die... If we are in Christ, we can be confident that we are fully cleansed, that we are freely forgiven, that we are glorified, and we are in a perfected state that can stand in the presence of God. Not because of anything that we've done, but because of what he has done and his gift that we've chosen to receive. So based upon that, I I believe that there is neither evidence nor even really a need for a place called purgatory. Mm -hmm. That's so interesting. I I don't know about you, but I've always personally wondered about purgatory. And um, this is really, really good stuff. If you're, you know, attending here, you want to listen again, you can watch it or listen online. Um, this is really good stuff. Let's go to our next question. Sure. Um, this is our last question. What does the Bible say about near-death experiences? Yeah, this is a good one. Near-death experiences, often defined as, like, out-of-body experience or somebody who experiences trauma, uh, plane crash, car accident, things like that, where they're medically declared dead, and then they come back to life, and they come back with some sort of vision or message of, of heaven and hell. Probably, you've probably heard of stories like this um, that have happened. Um, they are pretty popular. Uh, a number of years ago, a lot of books and movies were being made on, on such stories. I've got a number of them on myself, and I've read through a bunch of them. Um, things like uh, Heaven is for Real, uh, 90 Minutes in Heaven, um, 23 Minutes in Hell. I'll take the 90 minutes in heaven, thanks, yeah. over it. Um, but all these different books and movies have been written about this. And, you know, and I've read a lot of these, and they're interesting. Uh, I don't outright just doubt anyone's story necessarily, but many of these stories have been retracted. Like after the experience happened, the book was written, the movie was made, a lot of the stories have been retracted. That being said, though, it is not impossible. I don't think it's impossible for God to give somebody a vision of heaven. We definitely saw that it happened in, in the Bible. We know that it happened in, in the Bible a number of times. But outside of, of the biblical canon that we have, uh, it's definitely not normative by any means. Um, but it's not impossible for it to happen. Uh, you know, one example that we read about is in the book of Acts, where Stephen is falsely charged, uh, falsely accused of blasphemy. And those who are trying to uh, oppose the church that's growing uh, arrest him, they seize him, they take him away, and while he's being questioned, he gives a powerful speech about what all has taken place in Jerusalem, about who Jesus is, and at the end, he kind of points a finger at his accusers, and he goes, you guys killed the Messiah, which they didn't appreciate, and so they decide that they were going to stone him and, and kill him. Well, at that moment, in Acts 7, it talks about how... Um, 
Stephen had a vision of heaven, a vision of Jesus. And we read this in verse 55, 56, where it says, But Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, looked up to heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of the Father. Look, he said, I see heaven open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. Well, they definitely, the mob around him definitely didn't like that. And so they took him outside the city and stoned him. And his body died, but his spirit uh, went into the presence of Jesus. Uh, a little side our side note here, one interesting thing about this account is that quite often when we read these in, in scripture or even the stories that people say that they have visions of heaven, quite often they see Jesus sitting at the right hand of the Father. Here Stephen sees him standing, and, and we're kind of reading into this a little bit, but, but if you think about the context of what's happening, it's almost like Jesus is saying, you stood for me. In the face of death, I will stand for you as we usher you into presence. Mm. So uh, it's kind of a neat little thing on the wording that happens in Acts 7. It's unique that this is a case where Jesus is standing, not sitting at the right hand. Anyways, uh, but what we see in the account of Stephen is uh, similar to the stories we read in here. Uh, They see a light. They see the glory of God. Um, And and so there's some similarities there. but what's, what's the purpose of these is kind of one of the big questions, is why would God allow this to happen if, if this is indeed legitimate and taking place? You know, we can look at the story of Acts and Stephen. I think one purpose for that account in particular uh, is it provides hope for us, those of us who one day perhaps face the, our own valley of the shadow of death. We too can take uh, some sorts of comfort in the story of, of Stephen that that Jesus is there with us. Uh, probably some people here have maybe had loved ones who have passed on, and they might see things, hear things. Uh, there was a story, uh, my mom often tells a story of when my grandma passed, when her mom passed, that, that she was seeing angels, and she would just simply be saying, look how beautiful they are. Mm-hmm. And, you know, in short time later, she passed. So uh, it's hard to know what's happening, but, but there does seem to be a sense, anyways, and, and, and a level of occurrence with these stories that, it's not beyond the possibility, I don't think, that, that sometimes, you know, God opens, opens our eyes mm-hmm. to the future reality as a, as a form of grace and mercy as his faithful are ushered into his presence. And we see a bit of that in Stevens here. So, you know, all that to say, uh, near-death experiences, are, they're super intriguing. I, personally, I'm really intrigued by these. Uh, and I think we're interested in them because they offer us a glimpse into a mystery and they also offer us a glimpse into a future that is desirable, that, that we want to encounter. But here's, here's how I would encourage us to evaluate these. Number one, if the story that we hear or read, if it contradicts what we have in Scripture, it's not good. Because if God is going to do such a thing as this, he's not going to contradict himself in the revealed word that he's given us. So if it contradicts Scripture, it's not good. If it stands the test of Scripture in word and in purpose... Hey, great, there, there could be some potential truth to it. A second thing, if our fascination with this causes us to mortgage the work for Christ we have to do today to simply kick back and hope for tomorrow, uh, that's not good. Because we are to be uh, not just hoping for Christ in the future when all things are made right, we're to be living for Christ today. So if, if, if fascination this causes us to mortgage today in light of tomorrow... That's not good either. But if it inspires us to draw closer to God, uh, and if we can, therefore, through these things, live a deeper experience with him with a stronger hope for eternity, hey, that's great. Uh, Personally, I don't outright deny these experiences, but I do hold a healthy skepticism and try to evaluate them 
uh, in light of Scripture each time I come across one. So. Mm-hmm. That's good. Yeah. So, to, so to close today, uh, we've talked about all these different topics, heaven and hell, um, purgatory, afterlife, uh, really good concepts in general, but it's actually a real uh, topic that kind of came to light for our West Meadows family this week. Yeah, absolutely. This is um, like we we, caught, we can talk like conceptually about a lot of these things, but you know we're talking about heaven and hell. This is this is real life stuff. And um, some of you will know that you know this week one of our family member, one of our church members, um, uh, passed away. Uh, Jerry Ainsley uh, died this week. Um, yeah, he, he was faithful, faithfully attended for many, many years. I've uh, known him for, for quite a while. Uh, used to sit in the back pew there where, where B and uh, are sitting right now. Um, used to sit back there until he and Sylvia moved to Victoria a few months back. Uh, regular at men's breakfast. Uh, he and I had many, many conversations, um, lots of prayers together over the years. Uh, and man, if you knew Jerry... The first thing you knew about Jerry is he loved Jesus. He loved Jesus with his whole heart. Uh, and from the moment that he had a chance to share his salvation story with you, you just see that from the moment when Jesus got a hold of him until his final breath, he lived all the days of his life wanting people to experience new life with Jesus. That was, that was a huge motivating factor for him. Uh, moved to Victoria a few months back. But still watched online every week. I wouldn't be surprised if Sylvia and family are watching even this morning. Um, I still talk with him on the phone occasionally. Uh, he was still a big supporter. He and Sylvia, a big supporter of the church, even though they're away from a distance and uh, still pray for us regularly. But he recently became plagued with heart issues um, that eventually took his life. And, and part of the reason I wanted to, to share this with you today is two reasons. Number one, uh, this is the stuff we're talking about here, and, and the Ainsley family is, is living this this week. Um, But also, in in this time of COVID, we're not able to have services like we do in the past. And so I just wanted to share a little bit of his story, because it's just a way of honoring him as well, because we don't get a chance to do that in the same way during COVID. But Sylvia, uh, when I talked to her this week, she told me how he had passed. Um, And um, it's interesting. He reached a point where uh, you know, his heart had, had, had failed to the point where there's nothing more they could do for him, and they were basically keeping him alive with, with medications until the family could arrive. Uh, but even during that period of time, while they waited for family to arrive, he was happy, he was peaceful, and he was continuing to witness, just telling people about Jesus still, uh, even, even in those moments when he knew that he was in his, in his final moments. Uh, and the doctor uh, made the decision to allow the family to be present, uh, around his bed in those moments, and he had the opportunity to share his final wishes with his kids and his grandkids. Uh, his great wish, and my my heart as a father and a grandfather just so uh, echoes this. His greatest wish he shared with them is that they would one day walk the streets of gold with him. Um, I'm going to risk it to another sidebar sermon here, but um, but I don't think there's any greater hope for a parent or for a grandparent than to know that one day they will walk the streets of gold with their children and their other generations. Um, don't give up hope praying for those in your families who do not yet know the Lord. Continue to pray for them. Continue to share God's love with them. And if you are on that side of not walking with the Lord, man, new life with Jesus is, is available to you. Um, and we want you to know more about
So that was his greatest wish for them. Um, and so as he started to slip away, uh, the family decided that what they would do is they would uh, sing hymns, they sang Christmas carols, uh, they prayed for him, and not quietly, like it sounds like it was loud enough that everybody else in the ward was wondering, what in the world is going on over there with the singing of hymns and, and Christmas carols and all these prayers being offered? You know what was going on? They were celebrating his arrival into eternity. Is the family gathered around him and they celebrated his arrival into the presence of the Lord. I just thought that was beautiful. What a beautiful way to... Uh, to live for Christ, but also to die for Christ. And that's what it's all about, folks. That's why, we, that's why we come together on Sundays. That's why we encourage you to invest in, in your walk with Christ throughout the week. Um, we want to glorify and honor and praise him together as a people, but also, also live for him in a deeper, ever more enriching experience of what that means. To truly know what it means to be absent from the body is present with the Lord. So... Uh, yeah, let me pray. Let me pray. I'll close. I'm going to pray. Then we'll close. And uh, the worship team can come out. Hopefully, there'll be no more tech issues. After this. All right. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this chance to gather again today to acknowledge who you are. The difference you make uh, in the life to come, yes, Lord, but also the difference you make in the life in which we live today. I pray, Lord, that for each person here who. Um, who perhaps has some lingering questions or has been prompted or challenged by something they've heard today, that, uh, that the spirit that is within us, the spirit that is among us, would continue to do the work that has already started in their lives. That we as a church uh, family, that, that I as a leader and other leaders here within the church can come alongside those to help us all find answers to questions that we have. That we would not be plagued by these to a point of hopelessness, but that we'd be encouraged that, Lord, that you are with us, that you are for us, and that you have a, an eternity planned for those who are in Christ that is beyond what we could ever imagine. God, for those who do not currently walk with you, for those who are still living in the consequences of the nature of their own sins. God, I pray that right now in this moment that they would just surrender their lives to Christ, that they too would one day know what it means to be in your presence, that they would come to know what it means to start living for you today, to start living eternity now as a citizen of the kingdom of heaven, to reveal to the world around us what new life in Christ looks like. God, help us as a church to, uh, to be ministers and ambassadors of your good news to all that we meet, whether that be through word or through deed that we would glorify you in all these ways, that we would honor you. We pray this all in Jesus' name.